This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. Canada is seeing a spike in gas prices right across this country. That's according to our gas uh, our gas price analyst guest. Now, while we're seeing around a buck thirty five a liter for regular in Vancouver, just last Friday, for example, prices hit one seventy four. So, what's up with the spike at the pumps? If anyone knows, it's our next guest. Even though the Oil companies might disagree. Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, it has been a while. Uh, I hope you've been well. Uh, Bob, it's great talking to you. It's been a while and uh, too long, but let's do this again, but not because uh, prices are going up. Maybe we can talk about prices dropping. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? I'd be first in line. I'm sure a lot of people would be elbowing one another to be first in line to talk to you about that. Uh, So what is going on, Dan? Look, we've seen a couple of months of oil prices rallying uh, from, well, the beginning of the year, 60, 58, sorry, what am I saying, $49 a barrel, uh, $60 a barrel by the end of uh, March and into April, and now $77 a barrel yesterday morning, but then dropped right down. This is where the bad news, of course, oil goes up, but the bad uh, good news uh, is now dropped dramatically, and it's about $72 a barrel. Uh, so, Bob, that means uh, we get a two-cent decrease tomorrow. Uh, Thursday. And it looks like another two cent decrease come Friday. So if you can hold on and you need to get somewhere, just hold off and filling up. You're going to see those prices drop, you know, three or four cents a liter. That's worth a cup of coffee and maybe a half a half an order of Timmy's. I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, these prices really are reflecting a surge in demand for oil products as we're coming out of this uh, long period of uh, COVID driven demand destruction. 416-360-0740 or toll-free if you care to join us, one 740 4740 And it seems every time, not yourself necessarily, Dan, but any time yep. there's someone trying to explain why this goes on with gas prices, especially why they rise and trying to get some reasoning, rationale, justification, we seem to get an explanation, maybe that's the whole idea, where it's to lull one into sleep or let your eyes glaze over so that your ears tune out and then you nod off and then they can close the bedroom door and just walk away and leave us in in our, uh, you know, in our slumber until we wake up again and go, well, wait a second, what was that all about? Uh, it, it, the impression is we can't get a straight answer. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. Yeah, and there's a lot of jello, and there's a lot of walls. Look, uh, it's a lot of moving parts, but oil's important because, of course, the world's not producing enough of it, and demand is going to the roof as countries go through this whole vaccine, and uh, you know, uh, people get back to doing what they normally do, and life is starting to look like it's getting back to normal, uh, even here in Ontario and across Canada. But the other issue has been, you know, we've got to face it, Bob. I mean, we've seen uh, not only increases in prices as a result of demand, we've also seen federal government help itself to an ever-increasing larger share of the tax pie. Uh, you didn't pay a carbon tax two years ago. Uh, you're not paying 10 cents a liter. So, you know, while $1.35.9 is a lot, uh, you know, imagine if we, we might even have this conversation if it was uh, 10 cents less at $1.24.9. I, I think not. And I think that's kind of where we're going here. Uh, price of energy... Uh, and affordability is going through the roof. I'm president at uh, a little organization called Canadians uh, for Affordable Energy, and we're monitoring this. We're saying electricity prices are up, natural gas prices are up. Some of that is due to the market, but a lot of it's also due to government saying, hey, uh, you know, we should be using a lot less, and therefore we should be paying a lot more. Unfortunately, as most of your listeners know, we're a country that's built, you know, built and blessed with abundance of resources, and it's uh, the generations before us that paid and built this great infrastructure, whether it's nuclear reactors or whether that's uh, access to natural gas, all things that have made us very competitive. But uh, hey, these prices are uh, are getting a little uh, are getting a little rich, and I think uh, for many of us, more than we can afford. 
All right. Uh, pulling up behind us at the pumps is Dennis from Brampton. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good afternoon, Bob. Uh, you've been playing the devil's advocate today, so I'm going to do likewise <laughs> and suggest that if, given what we've seen uh, out west with temperatures higher than the Sahara Desert this week, wildfires, uh, droughts, that gas prices are not high enough. And uh, you, you look on the roads and, and just the data shows that people are buying SUVs, uh, pickup trucks that consume a lot of energy. And uh, as long as gas prices are low, there's no incentive to do otherwise. I'll, that's my comment, and I'll wait for your guests to uh, respond. Okay, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, well, thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate that. And tips I had to everyone in Brampton today. Um, look, the unusual weather that we might get during the summer um, is not precedent-setting. Um, I was just looking at some documents the other day showing 1958, 1985, uh, 1931, 1937. British Columbia saw these very similar temperatures. Um, we're not sure how the fire in Lytton began. Uh, it's suggestion now that it's been it was deliberately set. But I get the point. If we're going to deal with the issue of you know of uh, climate change, and I think we also have to understand that Canada's role in terms of any man-made gases that might be relating to this, and I say might because I don't science is settled. Uh, we need to look at countries like China. We need to look at uh, countries like India. They're increasing their carbon uh, footprint. They're emitting more, and so for that reason, I think it's important we don't punish Canadians for something that they're not responsible for. Um, uh, Dennis, uh, Bob, myself. We all come from a generation where we did have pollution. We saw Lake Ontario almost die. We saw air pollution. All those things are a thing of the past. I think uh, it's important that we don't get too alarmed over what's happening. And uh, we certainly don't allow our politicians to go in and bamboozle us with uh, what could be substantial increases in the cost of living, the likes of which most of us can't afford. One of the points you raised, Dan, uh, Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Bob Comsigan for Libby's Nimer. One of the points that you made, the world's not producing enough uh, oil. What about this country and the, the decision with Keystone XL and not going ahead? Talk about producing or not producing. Uh, the implications here. I know that's a real big story for another day and we don't have that much time. So just to kind of touch on the some of the highlights. Yeah, well, we've seen five major pipeline projects mixed in Canada, and um, only one that went through, and that cost us several billions of dollars, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I guess what people really have to understand, Bob, is that um, you know oil and gas are Canada's number one revenue generator. People should have to also understand that we're the cleanest of the countries when it comes to producing that energy, not just in terms of labor standards, but also environmental standards. Um, in our oil sands, we've seen you know methane, which is a real problem for people, drop 22 23%. So we're ahead of the Americans on that. But that's no reason to content ourselves. The drop in our energy ability to sell energy to the rest of the world, especially fossil fuels, um, at a time which the world is going to use more natural gas, more oil, means that Canada is effectively economically shutting itself out. And Bob, my big concern, how are we going to pay these multi-trillion dollar deficits that we've incurred federally, provincially, municipally, and of course, uh, you know, the unfunded uh, liabilities like pensions. So, you know, the country's got to have a bit of a uh, reality. I know these things are great. We can aspire to do great things. We want to do better things. But I think, Bob, we have to be realistic. We've done a lot of great things in this country, and uh, we have to continue uh, building, uh, you know, in, in, in lockstep with our ability to, uh, to make ends meet. So the big stop sign in front of the Keystone XL uh, pipeline uh, project, uh, a big blow? Uh, well, a big blow to the country, a big blow to investors. Uh, the climate in Canada is that it's not a great place to invest. And uh, we're also seeing the effect of disinvestment in the fossil fuels industry. While we need more for our petrochemicals for, to make our PPEs to fight pandemics, uh, while we need it to you know, make those electric vehicles, they, they're all made with fossil fuels, like it or not. Um, this is a, a really bad signal for the country because it suggests that Canada is not a very good place, a very stable place to invest, especially in our energy uh, resource sector. And I think that's going to start to show up. Uh, one thing that came out this morning that has me very concerned, uh, Bob, uh, of the OECD countries, that's the, you know, the developed countries, you know, there's 35, 30, 35 of them right now. Canada is uh, in the top 10 when it comes to unemployment. 
we still have a chronic unemployment problem of 8.2% in this country. That's uh, way behind a lot of other countries, most of them, in fact. Who knows? I mean, Trump said yes to Keystone. Uh, Biden said no. Who's to say this is dead? Really? Well, it shouldn't be. Uh, and Bob, uh, for Biden to be going and asking and begging OPEC to produce more oil when he killed the pipeline like this, I think they've got to be careful of the doublespeak. Uh, you needed Canadian oil. Americans are needed for energy independence unless they want to rely on OPEC and, you know, uh, Middle Eastern countries and unstable countries uh, for their oil. Um, Americans have a choice to make. Now, I don't think they'll respond quite the way Canadians did, which was, oh, it's all about climate change and doesn't matter what else we do. I think Americans are a little bit more uh, to the point. Uh, you start messing around with the f- price of fuel, you start messing around with their energy independence. That has large geopolitical implications. So I think uh, we're going to see a bit of a pushback, um, and the pendulum has swung too far in one direction of uh, green at all costs. Unfortunately, it's taking the green out of our pockets at the same time without any proof that these things are going to stop emissions. i give an example, B.C., two carbon taxes over the past 13 years, their emissions continue to rise. So be very careful when politicians come asking for more of your tax dollars because it's hurting the economy and it's hurting us and not giving us anything to show for at the end of the day. Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Thanks for your time. Hopefully we'll speak soon. I'm looking forward to that. Have a great day, Bob, to you and your listeners. Thank you, Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer, who returns tomorrow here on Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. While fewer cases are being recorded at hospital emergency departments and intensive care units, members of the medical community are concerned, frustrated about treating COVID-19 patients who are not immunized fully or at all. Some are speaking out about this amid the threat of the new Delta variant. You've heard Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, on Zoomer Radio News, urging more residents to get vaccinated. This is a call for arms. Each and every Ontarian that rolls up their sleeve and bears their arm helps make our fight against COVID-19 and the Delta variant that much easier and safer for the fall. And before our physician guests weigh in on vaccine hesitancy, here are the numbers for you to call and to participate in our discussion. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. Joining us now, Toronto family physician and a regular on Fight Back, Dr. Or- Iris Gorfinkel. Doctor, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. And I'd like to welcome for the first time Dr. David Carr, an emergency physician at the University Health Network and McKenzie Health Hospital. Uh, Doctor, welcome. Thank you for having me as well. So let's start with you and your experiences with uh, patients at uh, the two locations. What are you finding? Well, look, things have changed a lot. It's a much simpler, a much better time as majority of people are vaccinated. Our COVID cases have fallen dramatically. I mean, working actively full-time in emergency department, I, I cannot tell you the last time I've admitted a person with COVID-19. But what I can tell you is I'm yet to admit or refer a patient for admission with COVID-19 who was fully vaccinated. So these are interesting times. What a great medical advance we have. And it's exciting to see the effect it's had on curtailing the fourth, uh, preventing the fourth wave. Not asking you about your bedside manner, but what are you finding at uh, the bedside in talking with patients uh, who you find are partially or not vaccinated at all? You know what? I, I think it's a lot of this, like one of the things that Kieran Moore talked about, Dr. Moore, was that about 1.2% of all infections aren't fully vaccinated. So the people we're seeing who are persons under suspicion who are have COVID are usually not vaccinated. Um, what they are are not who you think they are. It's not, Bob, these people who are militant anti-vaxxers. A lot of this is an access issue. So we have to be very clear that, as Dr. Moore pointed out, we get the next incremental 5 to 10% of those doses to the people. And I know that if I had the ability to give vaccines in the emergency department, I would say that at least 80 to 90% of the people who don't have a vaccine would gladly take it with that sort of knowledge translation, education. And you can imagine the key role of family physicians in helping to solve this as they can look after their patients who are unvaccinated. I mean, we have some small steps to take to get us to the next level. 
You mentioned family physicians, so let's bring in uh, Dr. Gorfinkel. Uh, what about you? What are you finding? I'm finding an increasing number of patients have vaccine hesitancy, not so much because of safety or efficacy reasons, not so much because they prefer natural immunity. Some are expressing a bit of distrust in health authorities. There's that. And there are others who simply close the door to the concept of getting vaccinated, the true anti-vaxxer. And it's, it's very, very difficult. There's still a group out there that says, gosh, this, the research has been done too quickly. I'm concerned about that. I want to wait and see what happens to other people. You know, it's, it's, it gets hard to listen to in the face of so many deaths and so many hospitalizations. I mean, this really turned everybody's world upside down. And also knowing that such vaccines, that we have vaccines that are just so highly efficacious and including against the Delta variant. So I worry about the group that we can't access through reason. We can't say, you know what, these are the numbers. This is, you know, what can I help you with? They're essentially closing the door. That's the group I worry about. I certainly believe and agree with Dr. Carr that if we could get them into emergency rooms, it'd be tremendously helpful and into family practices. You know, historically, the reason that hasn't been done is because we wouldn't have been efficient enough in rolling them out. You know, who has, is this the king of efficiency? Truly, it has been. And the saviors among us have been the pharmacies, the pop-up clinics, simply because they can really ram them out in numbers, in high numbers. And that matters, especially for vaccines like messenger RNA vaccines that require specialized storage requirements. You know, they, they had to be kept very, very cold. Otherwise, we risked having significant wastage, which we certainly did not want to do at the beginning of this pandemic. Playing devil's advocate, I'd be interested to see what you both think in terms of uh, your findings uh, with those who hold that position. So playing devil's advocate, uh, not taking their side, but throwing it out. What about the the line of thinking that, well, hang on, what you want to give me and put in me is something that to me, me I mean, in a general to me uh, sense, it's you want to give this to me, administer this vaccine that seems to have come on the market pretty quickly. And I just don't know if I want to be hearing about some, uh, to use the auto industry uh, analogy, a recall or problem with uh, this model or models. Dr. Right. Wolf. I can certainly sink my teeth into that. So what, what defined accelerated research in this, in this you know, place? First of all, governments pumped billions of dollars. We do not hear about the thousands of failed vaccines. We're hearing only about the successes. So there was that. There was the planning that it took to get the vaccines out. So the the research itself did not change in any substantive way. The research was done in the very same way. In fact, those trials are ongoing, looking for adverse events. And, of course, in the millions of doses we've now given, we're watching very, very carefully to see what happens for serious but unusual adverse events. You know, so overall, what accelerated the research was the packaging, getting them ready, the pre-manufacturing, the having bought them in advance. Each one of these steps, the entire supply chain was put into place prior to these vaccinations, even knowing that they were effective. Like, so this is all like none of this could be taken for granted. So that's what it took to get it under the wire in less than a year. So it's, it's an unprecedented effort. We've never seen anything quite like it. And that's what people are not quite understanding. What defines accelerated research? It's not the research part of it. What accelerated the process was everything else, having everything else in place. The research was very much the same. Dr. Carr? Yeah, I I think this is arguably one of the greatest medical advances probably in the last 100 years since insulin. I mean, this has saved so many lives. I understand people's skepticism, you know, in the scientific method and them having questions about it. And people are allowed to make their own decisions. I just think that, unfortunately, what people will need to see is that the decisions they make that have a cost to society will probably not allow them the opportunities to have the freedoms that they look forward to, such as traveling or attending concerts or sports events or other things. And I think that this has to be clear. Now, the rollout of this process was fraught with hazards. There was 
changes, especially with AstraZeneca, that certainly tempered the climate. But, you know, I always say, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. I mean, my family's vaccinated. I, my children are vaccinated. I couldn't be more pro-vaccine. I understand people's hesitancy, but talk it out. Family doctors are the gatekeepers of immunization. I'm an emergency physician. I see the patients when they're sick. Family doctors see them before they get sick. It's primary prevention. And I think the emphasis has to be put on taking our primary care, whether it's family doctors, nurse practitioners, and working on that education. Because I think you can talk people through it, as it's been said already by my co-speaker. This is a well-studied process. This is not something we just brought up and cooked overnight. And we've now administered billions of doses. And it's amazing how safe and effective these are. Really mind-boggling stuff. Uh, I don't think I'm veering off the topic too much, but Dr. Carr, with you being an emergency uh, physician at University Health Network and McKenzie Health Hospital, we see how the numbers uh, for uh, hospitalizations and uh, ICU admissions and ventilators and and everything else are are going in the right direction as they have for for some time now. So are you and your colleagues able to... uh, finally catch your breath and know which way is up? I think so. It's Look, the first stage was getting all of us and our colleagues vaccinated, so we felt safe doing our job. And now we've decanted the healthcare system where we have space. What we're now starting to see is a return of the patients who've neglected their care for months and months upon end. And that's a really unhappy cohort of breaking bad news of diagnoses like advanced cancers that have been missed with screening and and whatnot. So we are now able, we have capacity, we have systems. I want to see family physicians being opening their doors. I want to see emergency departments doing what they do. And we have to take care of patients because we have a huge backlog of people in this province and country who've had their care neglected. We will have another small wave of COVID. This is not going away. We just, as a healthcare system, need to learn how to deal with it. Vaccination is the key strategy now because that keeps our resources in check. Somebody, and I know what it's like, they might be listening, uh, be it online, their car radio, at home, and we're good company and we're obviously good information and entertainment here at Zoomer Radio. But as always, and I'm guilty of it as well, when let's say if I'm at home and I'm listening to something, uh, it's in the background and you might catch the odd, odd word or phrase. And with you saying, this isn't over. Uh, could be looking at another small wave. That's when maybe some listeners' ears perked up. What wave? What? 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 What did he say? What's he talking about? Hang on. Let's. So please expand on that a little bit, if you will. Well, look. If you look at the UK situation, which has been a real success story, or if you look at Israel, which is, was the real the darling of vaccination, they're both having uptakes. But I think what has to be shown here is there will be uptake of cases because this Delta variant, which is continuing in the last month of Ontario to spread on 80, 99% of people who are not fully vaccinated, they will bring that home. We have children who are unvaccinated just by their age. So we will see cases. But if we have vulnerable people vaccinated, we won't have an overwhelming taxation on our healthcare system resources. And that's what this is about. And that's why we want to avoid lockdowns. Is I do think that with this very contagious Delta variant, we will at some point have an uptake in cases. It's impossible to keep down because at some point we will stop vaccinating 220,000 people in this province every day. And when we do, there will be some cases. You just hope that those who are vulnerable and eligible get it. And I do believe that with enough people getting it, we really will be able to, whatever uptake we have, it will be nowhere like our third wave. Okay, so maybe correcting you a little bit, if I could, in your choice of words, it sounds like more maybe a ripple or two or ripples rather than wave, because wave, one thinks of being uh, sort of uh, overcome, whereas ripples, uh, it's not going away. So the water's not totally settled, but you can definitely see movement. And as you say, we could be seeing some uh, some up uptakes. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, closing thoughts. I'm hoping that we're making the most of the summertime to ensure that aerosol spread in buildings 
And I'm talking about workplaces, apartment buildings, and especially schools and universities are optimized. So the air filtration, we know that COVID-19 spreads by aerosol. It's not just a question of vaccine. We can also do something more, and that's the primary prevention of ensuring that aerosol spread is minimized. Get the HVAC system checked. Get it inspected. Make sure that, you know, the, the filters are, are changed. Make sure that teachers and instructors know you have to keep the doors and windows open because that matters a lot. And, in fact, that's exactly what's happening in the U.K. right now. They've said, fine, kids don't have to socially distance. They're actually saying this. Kids don't have to wear masks. But the one thing they have to do is inspect every single HVAC system. So for our listeners who, who live in apartment buildings, this matters a lot. Don't point the fan towards your face. Don't point the air conditioner towards your face. Keep the window and the door open. Ensure that that, that, that fan system is constantly running because that does make a difference to reduce aerosol spread. So I think we have to think of it not just in terms of vaccinations, I can't wait until the fall because it does look promising that we'll have a vaccine for kids between the ages 5 and 11, and uh, we'll take it from there. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician, founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. David Carr, emergency physician at the University Health Network and McKenzie Health Hospital. Doctor, thank you. And as we pointed out off the top, this was your first appearance, and hopefully it won't be your last, and that we can reach out to you in future if uh, the situation uh, uh, requires it. Sounds great. Have a wonderful summer. Okay. Mark, be safe. Thank you, you and uh, your family as well. And again, Dr. Gorfinkel, thanks as, as always and uh, a regular here on Fight Back. Bob Comsick sitting in for Libby Snymer. She will be back with you tomorrow here on Zoomer Radio AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. And uh, what's going on at the, the pumps with those prices? Noticing they're kind of creeping or are they kind of going a little too high and too quickly for your liking? We will discuss with our next guest right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Libby will return tomorrow. One more step to go before the city of Toronto could rename Dundas Street. Now, after the city's executive committee voted unanimously to do so, this paves the way for city council to rename it, along with all other civic assets bearing the name of the Scottish politician, Henry Dundas, who campaigned to delay the abolition of slavery. At least that is what uh, those who support a name change say. Descendants of the family disagree, saying that's not quite accurate. A motion to initiate a public engagement process goes before City Council at its two-day meeting next week, beginning on the 14th. Now, if approved there, Dundas will officially get a new name, but not right away. A city manager report recommending the name change explains the huge, expensive change that could cost as much as $6.3 million would involve some 730 street signs, of course, a couple of subway stops, three parks, a public library, hundreds of bike share stations, around 60 businesses that actually have Dundas in their names, and plenty more. Now, a community advisory committee made up of black and indigenous residents and business owners will come up with a short list of potential names for consideration by council in the spring of next year. So if all goes well, new names for the street and civic assets could be in place about a year after uh, approval by council then. So we're looking at the earliest, likely the spring of 2023. Numbers to call for you to take part, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 1-866-744-740. And here now to provide some historical context, Dr. Ronald Stagg, of course, a history professor at Ryerson University. Welcome, uh, doctor. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. 
So let's uh, go back, if you will, seeing as history is your thing and your expertise. So uh, provide some uh, context here in relation to this this dispute as far as uh, the late Henry Dundas. Well, it's this is a very interesting situation. I'm on record as wanting to keep statues up that are of, of controversial figures uh, and put a plaque on them to explain so that it's a, something that can be used for future generations to learn about the situation. But in the case of Henry Dundas, he has no connection with Canada. His his name was put on the village of Dundas and the Dundas Highway, which came to Toronto uh, by the first lieutenant governor, John Graves Simcoe. So he never came to Canada. He didn't have anything to do with it. The issue that people are, have brought up is whether he tried to stop the uh, end of slavery, uh, a bill to... Uh, do away with slavery, and the, the counter-argument is uh, he didn't think it was going to pass, and he uh, therefore didn't support it. Uh, again, we'll never know for sure. But the key thing for people in Toronto is, they say, he had no connection whatsoever. And Dundas Street itself is a creation of the early 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. It didn't exist the original Dundas was to come in along what is now Blue Street. Anybody who travels on Dundas will notice it does a lot of uh, quick curves and uh, moves around a lot. It's because they joined a lot of small streets to make Dundas. So historically, uh, it doesn't go back that far. So that's the one side of it, basically, the historical side. He has no connection to Canada. The uh, street has only existed for a little over 100 years. And so it's something you can get rid of. But then there's the other side. Now, can you, as far as historical context, address some of the uh, disputes being raised by descendants and others who say uh, what the city staff based their uh, views and recommendations eventually on simply are not accurate, not on the points that you just touched upon, but uh, as f- especially it seems that the descendants feel what's being said with him sort of being in the way of abolition of slavery simply doesn't cut it. It's really not true in their view. This is, a, 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 again, a, a controversial thing. Um, the argument is that it wasn't that he was against uh, ending slavery. It was just that in the particular context, he didn't see uh, that the law had any chance of, of passing. Again, um, from from what I know, I can't make a decision on that. Okay, let's uh, catch our breath here and let's go out to uh, Ron and Guelph, who'd like to weigh in. Ron, welcome. Good afternoon. Well, uh, thank you. You know what? That professor sort of said it. I've read enough stuff right now that Paul Harvey used to have an expression, what's the rest of the story? Well, let's find out what the rest We're only hearing a little snippets of information that Henry Dundas delayed it. But as I said, there are multitudes of reasons. Um, my other comment would be um, they're going to spend, so far they've said six. What, billion dollars? 6.3 million? No, it could eventually totally cost that. Not that they've spent so that much so no, far, no. but it could. But here's the other side of it. What about all the merchants, everybody else, the restaurants? Um, are they going to come after the city and sue the city of Toronto for the cost of changing their name? I can see this easily ballooning into $8 billion, $9 billion. And wouldn't, the, I mean, for all those wacky wokes, as I call them, wouldn't the money be better spent that they're going to spend on this to help the homeless, the hungry, the people that disenfranchised? That's money that uh, could be spent on them rather than changing a name that for somebody that never even came to Canada, has no association. Okay, Ron, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's go to Tony now. Tony, and uh, welcome. Yeah, hello, Tony from Pepperlaw here. Yeah, um, where does this stop? You know, it, it starts at Dundas. Um, then it goes to Sir John and McDonald. Then it goes to Ryerson. And I mean, that was life in those days. I'm not condoning it. All I'm trying to say is that 
those people at that time didn't know any better, and that was just a part of living, which was sad, but that was a part of their life. They didn't, they, at the risk of sounding like they were kids, they didn't know any better. You know, my dad was in World War II, and I was doing my history project one time, and I read something about World War II. My dad was in it. He said, no, no, that's not how it happened. That's not very accurate. And he told me stuff. So what I'm saying is that the stuff you write about this guy, is it, how accurate is it? I mean, how accurate is it? You know, and I, I sort of disagree with all stuff. This money can go somewhere else. And if it's going to be done to ask, it'll be another street. They're going to come up with another name here. Sir John McDonald, they want to change it. I mean, it's getting, honestly, it's getting ridiculous. And, uh, uh, just leave, leave it alone. And, uh, Otherwise, I think they're opening up a can of worms here that uh, it's going to be another street and another street. And, you know, and of course, a lot of people involved in the 1800s, 1700s had something to do with slavery, who was in the money part or in the political side of it all. So, like, where do you draw the line? Okay, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Dr. Stagg, is, uh, Professor Stagg, as you pointed out, there are certain things that, as far as historically, it's black and white, and certain aspects to this, as in many aspects of history, are gray. And this would be, to a degree, gray, unless, of course, you talk to descendants, and they'll tell you it's totally off base. But anyway, it's just a, a, a controversial and gray area. And it's going to remain so, I'm sure. Yep. Okay, let's go to uh, Jerry in Scarborough. Good afternoon, Jerry. Yeah, I'd like to uh, elaborate on that other gentleman as far as the name change concerned. With all the, the business, not only the businesses on Dundas Street, but what all the banking institutions and customers that they, they deal with have to have to change their addresses. And it's a snowball effect. This could end up, you know, costing millions of dollars above and beyond, all these people have signs in that. We're going to have to change their signs over and change, change the name. Who's going to put the bill for all that? Okay, so this is, thank you, Jerry, in, in Scarborough, and uh, Professor, obviously, this is something that uh, still needs to be looked at. Now, whether it necessarily would be a shared matter, as far as the businesses are concerned, I can see street signs, that's clearly, if the change does come to pass, then that would be up to the city. But as far as businesses, that might be something where the city might have to help a little bit in the in this area, right? Yes, and that's that's the other side of it. Uh, a lot of people, I'm sure, see Dundas as a, a thing they travel on or their businesses on. They don't see it in terms of uh, what happened in the past. And I think what I really would like to see is more public consultation. We had, what, 14,000 people sign the petition? I've forgotten now. Yeah, 14,000, 15,000 maybe by now, right. Yeah, and, and on, you know, everybody knows about petitions. You meet somebody and they say, oh, look, I've got this petition, uh, so-and-so. And so. Oh, you say, oh, that sounds terrible. I'll sign the petition without really thinking. Right. I really would like to see more public consultation about the issue. Now, I don't know as far as public consultation, but as consultation, because as as I mentioned off the top, as part of the introduction, a community advisory committee that's made up of black and indigenous residents and business owners will come up with a short list of potential names for consideration. So it's not like uh, come next week at City Council, if they agree with the executive committee's recommendation, which is based on the city staff report, that it's all systems go and get out of the way. Here come the painters or here come the sign changers, and it's all said and done. So we're not quite there yet. So let- I'd really like to see more consultation. I, I'm, not, I'm sitting on the fence on the whole issue, but I really would like to hear other people's point of view, just as you're getting on the, uh, on the telephone now from people. And let's go to Brian in Mimico for some more uh, comments. Brian, welcome. Hi. Why don't we do the whole world of favor and bad political correctness? You know, they got a problem with this, and it's only going to get worse because it was named after someone that officially dropped that as being the reason it's named Dundas, and rename it Dundas, say, after the city in Scotland of Dundas, which I'm sure a lot of settlers to this country came from. Simple enough, and it won't cost you a penny. 
Okay, very good. Brian and Mimico, thank you. Mike in Toronto, uh, you're not too crazy about this. Well, I tell you, this whole Dundas Street thing reminds me of the, the need for term limits in the city council. We've got a bunch of guys and girls there seem to have nothing better to do than contemplate idiotic projects like this. Uh, I'd like to see people like Perks and Layton and a few others just disappear. Give them two terms limits and then you're gone. Get a real job instead of wasting our time and potentially wasting millions of dollars of other people's money on their pet projects. You see, I'm an Irish immigrant. Why should I pay for changing out Dundas Street signs all over the city? It's ridiculous. Okay, Mike, thank you. And just to point out, yesterday before uh, the city's executive committee considered the staff report uh, pertaining to a possible name change for Dundas Street, uh, the mayor warned other petitions won't automatically lead to name changes as about 60 other street names across the city require further examination, including at least 12 streets commemorating slave owners. And the mayor says the change must be made in a sensible, practical manner to minimize impact on local residents and businesses. So maybe that might go a little bit toward uh, addressing some of the questions some of the listeners have as far as what this could mean for, number one, for the business owners along Dundas, and secondly, for uh, the residents. Nancy, good afternoon. Yes. Where do you, uh, where do you sit on this? Well, I think it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. It's a waste of money. It's our tax dollars money. Our taxes keep going up and up because there isn't enough. There are people dying in the streets, and we are pouring millions into this nonsense. Whoever Dundas Henry was did. He may not have been perfect, but he did his best. Best. Those were the times we have apologized. We deeply regret all the hurt, all the wrongdoing. No one would ever do that again. At that time, they didn't know any better, and they worked towards correcting. All the benefits that we have now, all the assistance we have now, it's because it's been in the works for centuries. I think it's a waste of time for the politicians. I am so disappointed in all these politicians that have to sit into this nonsense, okay? Nothing is ever enough for some people. I wish that they would just open their pocket, and maybe if they had to pay, all those that want the name change pay up, because the rest of us do not want to. Our taxes are too high. And that goes for Dundas Street and for all the other streets that they want changed. And that's my view. I wish that there would be more talk about this because this needs to stop. Money is being burned and we cannot keep up paying taxes. Thank you. Nancy, do you uh, live near there or Dundas or no? No, I don't live near near there. No, I was just curious. No, but it has been part of my life. I have lived down there. I have grown up there and I love it. And it's... uh, a familiar place, and it's the way it is. That's the history of our of, of our country. That's the history of our Toronto. I don't think changing names will do anything to benefit those that have suffered. We deeply apologize. We regret. We, people didn't know any better. I see that you're calling from uh, Europe, Richmond, Rich- Richmond Hill. Richmond Hill, yes. Okay, but I have lived downtown and i do go very often however this is making my stomach turn to see how money is burnt when there's people dying on the street and with this opioid drug pandemic really what are people thinking of what are the politicians thinking of okay and we'll leave it at that nancy as far as your contributions and they are appreciated your comments thank you so much thank you and i hope there will be more talk on this. I hope we can put a stop to this nonsense. Well, the, I'm fed up paying taxes. W- I pay taxes all my life. For what? To have it just go down the drain? Because, oh, I don't like that. 
Okay, Nancy, thank you very much. And uh, you're not alone. We just have to go to uh, Barry in North York, who who agrees with the sentiment that many have expressed. Welcome, Barry. Thank you very much. Bob, how you doing? Doing well. Go ahead. What's uh, what's your take on this? Very simple. Um, I agree with all these comments about not changing it. it. These people that are so upset, call City Hall. When you're upset with something, you call your MP, your representative, call City Hall. and give the number. Very simple. If you want, I can give it out right now. Okay, go Four, ahead. It's 416-392-2489. There you go, That's Barry. The City Hall. Thank you very much. Okay, Daryl in Toronto. Welcome. Hi, how you doing? Good, you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Yeah, I think this is just a really, really dumb idea. I, I can't understand. It's obvious from your show that there's no unanimity within the city about this. So how is this committee come to a unanimous decision, you know, unless they're just kind of too dangerously inbred with themselves? Um, they don't represent the city. So how is it that they're making this decision? And again, I, I agree with everybody else. Like, take the money, you know, and, and use it to help people. This is mere appeasement, and it, it, it serves no real purpose. Um, think of all the different names, you know. What did Queen Victoria ever do? To, did she abolish slavery? I honestly don't know. But if she didn't, then, you know, there goes Victoria Street. There goes, you know, King Street, Queen Street. What could be more white supremacist than that? in that sense. Um, and, you know, tons of streets, even if you live in, like, what, York region, where there's slaves in York, back in England. Um, it's just it's just ridiculous kind of situation. And I think at the very least, they should have a referendum with the next municipal election. Okay. What the actual people feel, rather than how many people are on this committee? Uh, well, that was, uh, I think there's a half a dozen or so. I think a couple abstained yesterday. They weren't present, but uh, right. that's just the committee, not city council. So council still has to address it. But anyway, Daryl, thank you so much. You raised some okay. some interesting points for for many to consider. And Professor Stagg, uh, as you said, interested to know what people think. And we have heard from so many, and they all seem to be singing off the same song sheet they're opposed out there i don't believe we heard from from one who was in favor and i'm not surprised it is a lot of money and a lot of people are going to say it's dundas what does dundas mean so there's going to be this controversy whether or not the city goes for it and let's hear from another caller on this and this is a real interesting take mark who is in Toronto. I don't know if he lives on near or has a business on Dundas, but he joins us now with uh, an interesting view. Please share it. Thanks for, thanks for taking my call, uh, Bob. And by the way, you've got one of the best uh, radio voices around. Just thought I'd put that in. <laughs> but um, to get to the point, um, I, I believe that, sure, the committee can always make a recommendation, and council certainly has to uh, look and explore uh, at, uh, at their meetings. But I'm of the opinion that uh, with, with the price tag attached here, uh, Bob, I think what they should be doing is putting this right to a referendum and making the people of Toronto uh, make that decision uh, in the next municipal election. It's a huge price. Um, and, and, and council has to be careful here because we don't have the resources in Toronto right now to just really throw money around. Um, and I think the best thing would just to leave it to a referendum, pose it to every Torontonian. I know not everybody votes, but it's, it's a lot better than a petition that, that recommends that, yeah, we change Dundas. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Bob. June Rollins, I'm sure you remember when she was mayor. You know, she banned, uh, I believe it was the Bare Naked Ladies Band from, right. uh, performing in Toronto. Somewhere in Toronto, I believe there's a June Rollins uh, park. What do we do? We go back and say, well, that's got to be changed for, you know, uh, having a certain view on a Canadian band uh, because of its name. Uh, the, the ball doesn't stop here. Uh, and that's why I say it, it's a big number. And uh, put it to a referendum. Let yeah. The Torontonians decide. Now, Mark, in the message here on the board, I had the impression maybe that you were uh, uh, 
I misinterpreted what what I what I'm reading here. I thought it was to see what maybe residents along Dundas had to say about it, as opposed to those right in across the city of Toronto. But still, you you make a valid point, one that's shared by many. So, thanks for taking your time to uh, be part of the of the conversation, uh, Professor Stag. It uh, looks like uh, the beat goes on with this, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next week at council and what consultation might uh, come out of uh, out of that decision. But I think I'd be remiss without asking you about, uh, I guess, your workplace, given the controversy there, too, with, of course, uh, there are those uh, students there that uh, refer to it, of course, as X university for the uh, namesake's involvement, Egerton Ryerson, in the development of residential schools. So how are how are things at Ryerson slash X University these days? <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, there are faculty uh, who are supporting the whole idea of changing the name of the university now. Uh, I'm on the other side. I've been published in various uh, newspapers and so on to explain that Edgerton Ryerson had nothing to do with residential schools. He was actually a friend and supporter of Indigenous people. But that's not a popular view among uh, a number of people. There seemed to be uh, some, uh, I guess, similarity in what we've just been talking about with Henry Dundas and with uh, you talking about uh, Edgerton Ryerson in terms of how he was perceived in terms of, uh, in in Ryerson's case, with residential schools, and in Dundas's case, with uh, with slavery. Yeah, the only difference is that Edison Ryerson was a Canadian uh, known for setting up the Ontario public school system. Henry Dundas had nothing to do with Canada. That's the big difference. I think there is something that you can definitely clear up because uh, I just heard you. Uh, in terms of pronounce uh, Ryerson's first name. I've heard it several ways, as I'm sure you have. So is it Edge or Egg? Egerton or Edgerton? It's Edgerton. I I contacted uh, members of the family and asked them. Okay, so it's Edgerton as in over the edge. Yes. Okay, so it's that. So at least, you know, out of all this, out of half an hour of talking about uh, Henry Dundas, we uh, we close with getting a proper pronunciation on Edgerton, <laughs> Ryerson's uh, first name. Uh, professor Ronald Stagg, history professor at Ryerson University, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, thank you for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed being on. Okay, very good. Bob Comsick sitting in for Libby's Nimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zuma Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown, and vaccine hesitancy coming up with our uh, medical guests and hopefully with you as well right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.